Hello and welcome to Well I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. We chat about what they know now, what they wish they'd known earlier, and what their experience has taught them about dementia, about life, about anything and everything. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum lived with vascular dementia for the last decade of her life. She's no longer with us. But one of the main things that Mum's Dementia taught me and my family was just how little we knew about it. Now, through my work as a dementia blogger and campaigner, I do know so much more about this incurable condition. Not least, that the smallest things can make a huge difference to those with dementia and their families and carers. I called this podcast after a quote from author and poet Sylvia Plath, who wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. And dementia teaches you this too. My guest today shares my passion for words and she's discovered a remarkable and potent way of using them. When her own life hit a rough patch and she was brought very low, actor, writer and television producer Susanna Howard quite literally wrote her way out of it. She let her words flow onto paper never letting her pen stop and not allowing herself to think too much. The results surprised her. I was reconnecting to myself, she says. I was dredging up the me who had lain hidden for several years. She realised she was onto something and began ringing round refuges and hostels to share the idea and help others who, like her, had found themselves in a dark place for whatever reason. From a pilot project in the elderly care unit of Guy's and St Thomas's in 2006, her work has grown into the charity Living Words. Now, Susanna and her team run three-month-long care home residencies, working one-to-one with people in the late stages of dementia who would normally be considered unable to communicate. They carefully and skillfully enable them to do so through their own words. Each resident's words are then made into individual books which care home staff and relatives are encouraged and helped to read with them. It's about cementing a person's dignity, Susanna says, about going into that space, that different space of however a person communicates, and validating it for them. I've always believed that if you believe in people, they can achieve anything. The charity's work has been showcased at prestigious venues throughout the world, from London's South Bank Centre and the Tate Gallery, to the National Theatre of Taiwan and Alan Alder's Centre for Communicating Science in New York. In 2014, Living Words published its first anthology of words and poems of people experiencing dementia. Called The Things Between Us, it was acclaimed by no less a person than former Poet Laureate Sir Andrew Motion. Last year, Susanna was named on the Independence Happy List celebrating the 50 most inspirational people in the UK whose kindness, ingenuity and bravery have made Britain a better place to live. So, Susanna Howard down the line from Folkestone during this Covid lockdown, welcome to Well I Know Now. Well, first I've got to say how wonderful to be on a happy list. I just love the (laughs) idea of it. I think we should all be on a happy list somewhere. First of all, I just want to say what an amazing introduction that was to listen to. Thank you so much. Well, it's all true. I think we can safely um, tell people. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's interesting, the happy list, because I sort of, it, well, first of all, I was 
blown away to be on that. Mm. But secondly, I was nervous about the fact that it was the happiness that mm. people would think I was sort of a Pollyanna going <laughs> yeah. around, oh, it's all right. Yes. Which, of course, yes. is the opposite of, sort of who I am and, and what I do, you know, as personally and as living words. Mm. We've been doing some projects in the last couple of years and some of the participants have said, I'll do whatever you suggest because you go to those places that other people just brush past and you're not scared as an organisation yes. and as people to go there, sit there and be there. So, uh, yeah, I was a little nervous as well as delighted with yes. the happy list. Yeah, and no, yeah. I understand yeah. that. I understand that. But I thought we'd start with you telling us a little bit about your childhood in Chigwell, Essex. You were the youngest of three sisters and you say you were very influenced by, by both your parents. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Yes, there were four of us. So I was the youngest of four. And my parents, it's interesting as you get older in life, or I find it interesting as I get older in life to notice what has influenced me and what has shaped me as a person. And I think often as we're growing up, we're wanting to uh, be released from our background, to be released to forge our own way and not realising that so much of who we are has already been shaped. My my parents, uh, John and Maureen, have always been very much connected to their local community and never shouted about it or made great claims, but were always supporting other people mm. and had strong ethics around what was and wasn't. Yes. Sort of a way to be. I'm I'm struggling now to define it as I'm seeing lots of different images going through my head. But, you know, my dad was in the police force and he refused to join the Masons, which mm. as I got older was very understood what that meant and was mm. uh, was proud of him for that. Because mm. he always believed that, you know, no one should be standing higher than anyone else. Yes. And I think so he wasn't promoted as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So they both had very strong beliefs, didn't they? Yes, I think they both came from the different parts of East London mm. and very much things that in their early life had been sort of halted by their background. So my dad actually was star spotted by, he was in a drama group in Walthamstow mm. um, and in other parts of London. And he was star spotted by the, the two drama schools at the time, Central Armada, and he oh. was offered a place. Wow. And he's, yeah, I didn't, didn't, I forgot about this uh, when we were chatting. And he's, his dad, my fantastic granddad, Fred, said to him, you know, it's not for the likes of us. Oh. And my dad understood that and he followed that through. And mm. my granddad had been a lorry driver and mm. and had been through the depression. Mm. You know, as we were growing up, there would be many stories about when him and my grandmother didn't have any food on the table and how mm. they, you know, did things. And um, And so my dad followed that. And I was very close to my granddad and he only had two regrets before he died. And one of them was that he had said that to my dad mm. and um mm. and and then my mum similarly an incredibly bright woman mm. and, and and young girl who had done excellently in her exams at school and her mother who'd been prevented from having an education by her father mm. prevented my mum mm. from going in doing her a-levels because she said uh, you'll be too intelligent to find a husband and because of that yeah the two of these people, very different, coming together. My dad, very practical and always with itchy feet, always doing things. Very big personality. 
actor all his life, Amdram and all these things. Mm. My mum grew up on her own, no brothers and sisters, although close to her cousins. And her father died when she was young. But that meant that she was very introverted, read eight books all the time. Wow. And the two of them coming together really were a great pairing because they both wanted to have children. My mum always dreamt of having four girls, Mm. which she had. Mm. And they were determined to not give advice yes, and to just support. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which there were times in my sort of twenties <laughs> when I could have done with some advice. Yeah. But I, as an older adult now, I just completely respect mm. that and and the amazing things that they did and the amazing lives that me and my sisters have had mm. and how mm. you know my mum and my dad. You know they they deserve those and it is generationally you know we're always doing things that Mm. impact the generations that come we don't see the impact absolutely you are quite driven because I remember you told me (laughs) that when you were just aged 13 you wrote to the old Vic in Bristol theatre school to see if you could have a place which I thought was pretty good going (laughs) and I think they they sort of wrote back and said we'll just leave it a couple of years maybe they (laughs) did they wrote a lovely letter back I thought they were going to say oh yeah clearly you're clearly you're a yeah yeah but I sort of, yeah, wanted them to have an awareness of uh, mm. of me, mm. you know. As mm. the years went by, mm. I thought it would be mm. a, a connection. Mm. Um, and, and you went on to Bristol Uni, though, and uh, studied drama, and you loved it there. Yes, yeah, it was a fantastic three years. I think we were really lucky with the group of people who were there, and the course was small and tight, mm. and yeah, it was great. Mm. You flourished well there. But then you went on to the Central School of Speech and Drama in London, and that wasn't quite so happy for you. Oh, no. Yes. I think it was just perhaps I was, you know, exhausted and also yes. working so so mm. hard around being able to mm. go there. And um, I think perhaps looking back on, the, on that time, I didn't need to go and do that course uh, when mm. I did. Mm. Yes. And then you went off, and I know that you don't want to go into this time of your life when you did go down, and I completely understand that, so I'm going to respect that. So just, you did though, and you feel particularly vulnerable in lockdown, but you did kind of pretty much, correct me if I'm wrong, hit rock bottom really. And it was at that point, I think, wasn't it, when you really were pretty, pretty damn low, that you you started what you call flow writing, just to sort of get yourself out of it. Can you explain, A, why you thought about doing flow writing when you're in such a very low, I don't know if you'd call it depressed, but in a really low state, why you started flow writing of all the things to think about doing, and then what you went on to do with it? Yeah, sure. I, I wasn't depressed at that point mm. I was coming out of uh, an experience that had um, completely uh, destroyed me mm. as a, as in terms of who I was and mm. sort of a connection to myself my confidence I couldn't mm. make a phone call it was um, a place which I'm sure you know there are people listening mm. who've been to an equally low place mm. but I was yeah on my on my knees or physically and metaphorically mm. but I had in the past gone through a period of depression and been on antidepressants and I was determined not to go on antidepressants again right. this I'm not saying that because I'm against antidepressants they absolutely have the potential to save people's lives and do but I knew that that was not what I wanted at that Mm. time and my experience of having been on them meant that I was just sort of put up with a lot of things that I wouldn't have put up with before I'd sort of be at places that anyway I'm sure if there are people who have been on antidepressants Mm. can relate Mm. to that you sort Mm. of lose your you know your 
And so I needed to connect to myself. Mm. And I got lots of papers and pens and I just started writing, keeping the pen moving. And I just see what had come out of it. I'm, you know what, I can't remember. I'm sure I wouldn't have just thought, Mm. right, that's Mm. what I'm going to do. So I would imagine, and I wish I could credit what or who that was Mm. it may have been through therapists that I was seeing at the time Mm. but yeah Mm. I need to Mm. excavate that but I'm Mm. sure it didn't come from me Mm. flow Mm. writing is something that lots and lots and lots of people do all over the world Mm. and it is about sort of dredging up Mm. and getting past the blocks or barriers that you might Mm. have it's often used as a writer's exercise to you know sometimes we can write and think we need a story or something to go in a particular but actually there might be another story that wants to be told we're we're suppressing Mm. Mm. and so I just yeah just wrote and wrote and wrote and it really did feel like a physical dredging up Mm. through my body Mm. Mm. and through that process I did feel like I was writing myself back into into my body into myself and yeah into Susanna Howard, I guess. Yes, into who you were, because you say it sort of bypasses mm. the mind, which can get in the way sometimes. You overthink yeah. or you, yeah, yeah, and you just go straight, hit the bullet of where you are sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then actually friends and sort of people, you've had some really great individuals along the way, haven't you, of your sort of journey that we're talking about now. And this was a chap who just said he was working at, I think this was the chap at Guy's and St. Thomas's, and he said, oh, you know, if you come and move a bit of furniture for 40 quid, come and do this for me. And that was a huge yeah. door opening for you, really, wasn't it? Absolutely. That was um, my good friend, Joe Moran, who, mm. who runs Dance Art Foundation. Mm. And they were doing a uh, dance performance piece at St. Thomas's, or I think it was in the Evelina, actually, in the children's mm. ward, children's hospital. Uh, I don't know if it's hospital or ward, but the, mm. the Evelina Children's mm. Department. Yes. And um, I, I didn't even know that this sort of thing existed. I certainly had no idea that there were charities within hospitals that not only you know paid for paintings on walls, but also for interventions and workshops and all sorts of things to take place like that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, A lot and of us he, don't know, do we? I mean, this no, is... No. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's interesting because there's been so much fundraising recently around corona. When they've been saying this is money mm. for NHS charities these are the sorts of charities mm. that he's raising for charities mm, within hospitals. But I was, uh, I just want to go back to Joe for a moment because it was so wonderful. He knew that I needed a bit of cash. He knew that I needed to get out. I went along and I'd had this idea of, okay, you know, I'd been looking at lots of self-help books and, you know, it says start from where you are. I knew I needed to get out <laughs> yeah. in the world. It was like, okay, where am I? Okay. Well, I've, I've just been doing this flow writing and it has helped me and how can I apply that and so I thought well there's something there there's something there and I really Mm. was in a much sort of fitter stronger place by then and I was absolutely lucky enough to meet a woman called Catherine Jones who was working as the coordinator Mm. at the charity at Guy's and St Thomas's charity and I can remember really um, feeling sort of you know when you sort of feel like a there's a connection with the sky and with your feet down to the earth and it's sort of calling, you know, you've got to listen to it. And so I bravely stepped towards her and and mentioned, oh, I've got this sort of idea. And she was incredibly receptive and, and said, yeah, okay, great. Let's meet, meet for a coffee. And actually at that time, Pippa, I wasn't thinking about dementia at all. And it was only when I pitched her the idea and I said, you know, maybe this is with people who are experiencing cancer or people who are about to die. Perhaps families can do this work together. We can look at imagined futures. We can play with language. 
And she yes. said, well, I'm only looking for artists. We can't find any artists to work with people living with the dementia in the elderly care units. And then I went away and I realised I'd just written a play which was about two women in their 70s and 80s all around memory and identity. Mm. And uh, as part of that had come out of the flow writing, these characters had emerged. And it did seem like everything I was looking at because of the experience I'd had was around who am I, what makes up my identity, what's true, what's false, mm. and, and what does that matter? And so I think I, I sent off to the US and got a book about arts and dementia there. It was sort of a pamphlet. There was that book and there was one book by John Killick. And you set up a pilot in the elderly care unit. We did. And on the first day, I, and I knew it was going to be about relationship and about words. And I knew it was not about my understanding. It was not about trying to make people understood. It was about validating their expression and us yes, through I, our relationship I think connecting. that's quite important isn't it because you said to me you know this is not about life story work this is not about creating no. a story which of course is a very valuable thing in another aspect yeah. of dementia it can be you know for carers and people yeah. to know but this is actually the act of it almost isn't it or well I'll let you tell us exactly what it is but it's not really that anyway and another one of the things that you know now was this And actually, just from my own work as a writer, I absolutely believe in the connection of language and how we use our words to us, you know, to what makes you who you are. That's the sort of English that I studied at university, actually, the way that that's very profound, you know, the way that language, well, it defines everything. You know, yeah. I mean, literally, it literally defines everything. Obviously, it's language. And yeah, there have been some points where I've been a bit concerned, sort of more largely in the dementia and arts world, is there, you know, quite rightly there being an emphasis towards music, quite rightly there being an emphasis towards movement mm. and nonverbal communication, which is incredibly mm. important. But if we think that a person has to make sense or communicate in a way that makes sense and is of the world that those without a dimension may or may not inhabit, Mm. then I'm bypassing that vital connection to self. Mm. And if I'm suddenly going, oh, I'm saying actually your ability to make sound, the words that need to come out, you know, a woman once said to me, you know, Mm. I have to get them out of me or they're like stuck in me like parked cars. And this was a woman whose, you know, head was on the tablecloth in the care home and my head was on the tablecloth and we had the pen and the paper between us and could, could, and she said that very slowly, Mm. could have been dismissed by someone as not being verbal and you know what's the first thing we do when we're born mm. we make a sound if we Absolutely. if we have the ability to make a sound obviously I'm assuming we're not those who of us who are yeah, not mute yeah, yeah. and then we do that and it's we often only find things out about ourselves as we talk them through as we sound them out certainly as a writer you know as you put pen to paper and so I am very passionate about helping us keep that connection it helps us breathe it Mm. makes us stand stronger Mm. Mm. when you're so right the more you use words Mm. which is why writers as you say actually I mean I've done those sort of exercises when you get a block you know and uh, when I was writing my novel if you get a block you've still got to keep writing you may delete it all or you may not you know may sort of chuck it out at the end of the day but you've got to it's like an exercise it's like a muscle and you do find that you're you write a sentence, then you write another one, then it follows on and on and on. And there is a logic to the writing itself, to the words that you didn't know about before you started to write the words. Yes, so I can see it how, tells you. Yeah, yeah. I can see what you're saying about how that takes a person, it leads them back to who they were or it is who they are. Part of what Living Words does is support 
the incredible carers working across this country. And we also support relatives and, and do projects with relatives of people who are living and caring for their loved ones with dementia. And I think what we're able to do as an arts organisation or as someone other is able to go in and, you know, it isn't someone's expression isn't what they always say to us because we're just meeting them for the first time. Mm. It isn't, you know, something that feels like lies to a relative because we're just meeting that person who they are now. Mm. And actually that's making me think of someone that um, we worked with last year who something that he said that was made into a song I think resonates and so much and it was actually he was writing love letters mm. to members of his family and his daughter who has done everything to she can for her dad and is an incredible woman she said you know he, he lies about things which I can understand is a fear because it's a different way of communicating. Oh, he's going to be in this project. He's going to be telling lies. He's mm. not going to be telling things that are true. And I said, please let us do this and see how things go. And in the methodology, listen out loud methodology, we call it, that we use. Mm. Anil, who was working with Eric, realised that he was actually writing letters to a few different people. And in the one to his daughter, it said, I tell lies, <laughs> but I'm straight behind them. Wow. What an incredible, incredibly mm. clear way to express mm. Mm. his I'm reality. straight behind them. Mm. Yeah, mm. I tell lies, but I'm straight behind them. I'm mm. here. Mm. We use the sounds and our words to connect, mm. to enable us to be connected. And I we have our relationship yes. and then the words. And I suppose as a third party, as you've just said, in a way you go into that person's reality, don't you, of where they are as you say, when you might first meet them, and they might really have quite advanced dementia. But that is, I know this is a bit controversial, but that is their reality then. And you just sort of, as you said, you validate it, you enter it. and uh, well, That's actually, I, I might be misunderstanding you, but we definitely do not enter a person's reality. Mm. That's something we're really, really clear about. Mm. Because I believe that that is, creates an inequity in the relationship. Okay. And I believe that, yeah, I was going to in the introduction, I know you mentioned that. And I think that if you're completely with someone and you're vulnerable and communicating in a clear way, mm. you can say, well, what we would say is, I can't see what you see. I can't mm. see those horses. Mm. I can't see that chair. Mm. Mm. But I can see that it's making you happy. Yes, yes. And if someone knows that you are communicating with them, this relationship is solid. I am not afraid. Yes. And if I were to go, oh, yes, isn't it lovely? Yeah. And then yeah. someone walks mm. straight through it. Mm. Mm. Well, then mm. it shows it's like, firstly, mm. I would just feel very uncomfortable mm. about it. But it's just placing is is othering the person mm, mm. to go along with that and also i think something that can happen is that then people get into a position where they're like oh john likes this mm, or mm, you know mm. pippa likes soft cushions mm. well one day you might one day you don't Absolutely, it becomes yes. the you thing you start talking <laughs> to somebody else and, mm. but you know that can totally happen with and without it much, Absolutely. Can't it? you know <laughs> someone buys you a hedgehog for christmas suddenly you're the hedgehog absolutely, woman 20 absolutely. years later no know? absolutely yes no, um, i completely take your point i i, I do understand that yeah um, or you know and it can be really tricky and really delicate yes, so you're know, thinking of a man who um i was working with who there was some music going on in the home and he started licking an ice pretend ice cream in his mm. hand and then he offered some to me and we were very close very intimate you know this was when we were doing a project working with people who people you know said had challenging behaviors we, mm. that's a whole other conversation yes. 
and I said that looks so lovely mm. oh, you know exactly what I just said you know I I can't see that but I can see you're really enjoying it mm. I was like yeah I am mm. you don't want any I said no I can't see it but I can mm. see you can mm. and that to me is a mutual respect and you've actually got a relationship mm, there mm, no I, I I see yes I mean it's yeah yeah there's no patronizing there's no sort of it's an equity as you say which is one yeah. of the things you believe very strongly don't you say one of your tenets is that you know there should be an equity in in the relationship yeah yeah, yeah. we were talking about means... Jap- yeah we were talking about no, Japan well. weren't we when we spoke as well and this sort of the way that mm. they do that as well the carers and the cared for if you want to, you know but they don't see it like that at all they're treasured partners and it's an equal partnership yeah because yeah. you know as I'm sure people have been saying to you time and again with your podcasts something isn't being done or given mm, to absolutely. a person with advanced dementia yeah. you you are learning a lot more about what absolutely. it means to be a human absolutely. being than absolutely no absolutely which uh. is you know, partly why I sort of call it what I did and everything yes I think we have so much yeah. to learn but yeah. just on a, on a sort of lighter note to lighten it a little yeah. bit um <laughs> that was fantastic and it's it's kind of um, I suppose it's always relevant but there was a woman at the guys and Stomaters elderly care unit when you were talking to her and she gave you a lovely quote about the houses of parliament because obviously it sits there right <laughs> opposite doesn't it can you remember what it was yeah um, <laughs> she said I haven't got it in front of me so something along the lines of I don't know what that is, that but place, I know that what that comments, place yeah. is. Yeah, just looking because on the on the only uh, care unit is on the ninth floor of St mm, Thomas's mm, and mm. overlooking mm. the Houses of Parliament. Mm. And you said, I don't know what that building is, but I know the people in it think a lot of themselves. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was, you know, <laughs> pretty astute, actually. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> anyway, then the uh, guys in St Thomas's charity suggested that you take living words into care homes yes uh, and it was was it just still you at that point yes it was me on my own for quite a while yeah I felt like I was sort of holding something that was really delicate yes and the work was happening with me and the people that I was working with the people who were living with the dementia and I felt there was sort of no need to make it bigger no yes. need to tell people about it just for it to be happening Mm. And it was sort of something around this time that you got viral meningitis, which, awful as it was, gave you another sort of understanding, didn't it? Because your words became confused or just explain yeah, that was, a bit. It, it was very interesting, actually, because for ages afterwards, when I was recuperating, I kept calling the fridge the horse. Mm. And I know very clearly why I was calling the fridge the horse. In mm. my head, I had a picture of a Western film with mm. the horse with the big bag of vittles over mm. it. And so that's what I was seeing, the horse with the bag with the food. And so I was calling. And so when I said the fridge, the word horse came out. Mm. And um, that was just one example of how mm. my language became a bit twisted. Twisted, but the connection was there for you, which is interesting, yeah. isn't it, in terms of somebody with dementia perhaps saying something which sounds a bit surprising, but there's a logic. <laughs> um, and that really connects to the personal relationship to language. Exactly. No, absolutely. And when did you decide that you wanted to make well you were making the individual books what you know was that in the care home and then you then led on to making your first anthology yeah or living words very much now you know we say there are two sides to the organization Mm. the one side is the intimate 
participatory work one-to-one with people and them having their books, staff having their books, staff workshops. And then the other side is taking, with all the correct permissions, taking people's words out to the public, Mm. either through us or through them or through their relatives, Mm. but in really high quality, performative Mm. ways. Mm. So through songs, we've had a Queen Elizabeth Hall or performances that we've had all different places. And of course, yeah, the anthology, which (laughs) I bravely called Anthology One five years ago. So we must have another one else. Always good to give yourself a challenge. And you were invited to go into the Paul Hamlin Participatory Art Centre, weren't you, or whatever they call it there? Yes, they had a sort of weekend. I, I, I can't remember how long it was, a few days where they were at a university and invited lots of people who were participatory artists. Now, when I got the invitation, Pippa, I rang up and I said, I don't know why have I been invited to this? And they said, oh, you're a participatory artist. And I said, oh, am I? Am I? <laughs> and then I sort of <laughs> went and looked up participatory mm. art. So I was very much following my nose with the work. And then other people, and right up till now, actually, and other people come and sort of tell me what it is, which is a wonderful way to continue learning and mm. finding out that you're mm. sort of parts of bigger fields. Mm. And you went to the Alan Alder Centre in New York. What did you do there? Yeah, that was great. That was this year. I went with Oliver Senton, who's uh, one of our writers. He's an actor. And um, we have a partnership now with Eastside Institute in New York. That's mm. an incredible community organising arts and performance organisation. And there was the Applied Improvisation Network Conference. And this was one of the moments that we were told oh, you're this. And actually, there were mm. both the Improbable Theatre in the UK and the Applied Improvisation Network and Eastside Institute came to us and was said, this is applied improvisation. And uh, Applied like, oh, improvisation. Is it? Applied mm. improvisation. Mm. I was like, oh, is it? And yes, it most definitely is, we've discovered. And so we went from not being in the improvisational world at all, really, or that I was aware of, to having invitations to share our work at different places. And one of those was at Alan Alder's Centre for Communicating Science. And when you say share your work, what were you sharing? So we did a workshop sharing our work. So we sort of talk a little bit about it, but really we do it. So the method that we use this, you know, listen out loud methodology that we've called it, I believe that if practice is good practice then it can be done with anyone and so you know I'd say to people if you go into a care home and you see you know your relative there and you wouldn't sit down and join in whatever activity they're doing then you know I'd question whether it's good practice because you know dementia doesn't take away a person's connection to aesthetics and to beauty Mm. and to Mm. self-expression I argue. Mm. Yeah, so we did a workshop. We put people into pairs and everyone was writing down each other's words and then performing them to each other in different ways. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So and then another one of your things that you know now that you didn't before, actually, and in fact, you hesitated and said, oh, should I come up with another one? Because I said, oh, that's interesting. Somebody else had given that as their number one. And you've referred to it a lot, actually, during this conversation already, really, was that there's no them and us. This is the equity of the relationship, I think, in a way. It's another way of putting it, isn't it? You know, there's no doing to or imposing things on or it's just very much a two-way thing. Yeah, and that, you know, there's no space for othering. But I think that perhaps saying this sort of thing is kind of preaching to the converted. And Mm. and actually, I've Mm. been thinking about, you know, we're talking 
in middle of June, the mm, coronavirus, mm, mm. everything that's happening with the governments at the moment, the suppression of the Black Lives Matter movements to be able to protest and everything that's taking place is connected somehow to... I used to say when I first started this work that, you know, having dementia was an enormously a statement against capitalism. And... Um, okay. <laughs> uh, because actually a person then becomes of no value and worth within the societal structures that we have which are about how you can make money and not who you are um Mm. and the i'm sort of not expressing myself as much as i would like to or in in the way that i'd like to but the sort of the polarization in society you know we we can have a conversation can't we about oh it's about not othering it's about really connecting but actually who's going to take that on board i think people who feel that already are going to take that on board. And it's a massive journey of education and awareness Mm. that we need to change. Because when I was thinking about, you know, actually what might this thing that I know now is actually more sort of something to do. I've been scratching around how people feel very out of control when people express themselves or communicate in ways that don't fit the norm. No, I think that's absolutely right. And, And really, I've spoken to a lot of people about this and I felt it we're sort of coming towards stigma aren't we here as well so yeah. and as soon as you know somebody you love somebody like it was my mum in my case or whoever it is yeah. who has dementia I found and I'll be very honest here you know that it really changed my attitude towards it if yeah. I'm going to be sort of brutally honest now I think I'm a compassionate kind don't discriminate sort of person but mm. I wouldn't really put myself out there to go and talk to somebody in the advanced stages of dementia before because mm. I was a bit frightened about it. I didn't understand it. It was, you know, it's a bit, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. And we're so sort of, well, I hesitate to say we're British about it, but, you know, it's like, oh, you know, just don't, what the heck's going on over there sort of yeah. thing. As soon as it's your mum, stupidly, I don't know why it takes that to tell you, you think, well, it's my mum. Um, yeah, oh, you this know, is a person who has this is an, a person. Individual, is an individual. And it sort of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it changes your approach obviously it shouldn't should it because it should be there anyway this is what you're saying it should just be there and whether you have it or not you know it's just something that we should all have in a way do you think though that that's to do with the media in terms of news representation and also tv and films you know it's someone with a dementia is is a great poignant character to suddenly go from a vibrant person to looking out the window and it creates a lovely sort of sense of I don't actually narrative no um, you don't I but I've only entered this sort of sector mm. from 2014 but in the time I've done that I would say and I'm often asked about the media's portrayal mm. I think they're being pretty sensitive now and I do always say you know you've got to realize that they've got a completely different agenda really they're not you know yeah, whether yeah. it's a soap or whatever they're not into educating people about what dementia is that's not their role their role is to yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, entertain whatever it might be or get their readership up or their listeners or their viewers but they generally research it pretty well now um mm-hmm. and often involve people like you or like me or you know other people who yeah. are in the sector to say well would this happen i, I know that you know because people say actually they're very you know they're really keen to hear our views they do sometimes get it wrong i think it's more to be honest i could be wrong these are just what we're throwing out i think it's more to yeah. do with us and the you know I've written about stigma and it's fear and silence and then lack of understanding because we fear it we don't talk about it because we don't talk about it we don't understand it because we don't understand it we fear it and it goes on and on and it creates this vicious circle really and if you want to break through stigma you need to break that which is what I try and do in a little way by just sort of in a very light-handed touch try and just sort of spread the word about what dementia is i.e. 
a disease that happens to affect the brain and the body, not anything else. You know, it's just a mm. disease like anything else. Yeah. Therein lies a bit of a similarity with mental health stigma. I think, I think so, absolutely a similar stigma. And it's, you know, we're, we're living at this time where we're talking about, you know, matter, you know, Black Lives Matter, all ways of communicating that are, are sort of less valued and not heard is what, you know, as an organisation, Living Words, we're wanting to champion those voices and mm. use the arts to provoke change but around them. And I think it's that value mm, and matter. Absolutely. And you're championing the voice of somebody who, without a doubt, their voices aren't heard, and that is people with dementia, particularly advanced dementia. Yeah. So it's extraordinary and actually quite nicely leads me on to, I want to finish with the most beautiful piece of music it really is. And it's a song called Funny Old World, which couldn't be better timed in a way, that you created with John Offen, who was living with uh, late stage dementia. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Yes, sure. So we were doing a project in a care home and I worked one-to-one with John, writing his words down about how he was feeling about life. And whilst he was slow in speaking and between words, the words of this song are completely as he said them during one session and how he built it during Mm. one session. Mm. And then Marit Rokeberg, who's a singer and composer, came in on the project. And in that project, we were exploring different ways of working with music. But the way that Marit was working was very much that then she was singing and trying out, singing John's words. Mm. And then it was sort of giving it back to him as a song, which wasn't what we were doing mainly on the project Mm. and using a lot of his influences. And so, yeah, Marit created it and then it was sung by... London Contemporary Voices Choir. Mm, how um, beautiful, at, aren't they? Lovely yeah, sound. Yeah. At Queen Elizabeth Hall. And then Nitin Sawney let us record this track for free in his studio, which was amazing. Mm. And there are just a couple of things I know you're drawing to a close, but going back to, I don't think I answered the, when you talk, the second point about, or it might have been the first actually, about, you know, keep going. Mm. I just sort of wanted to say, yeah, in relation to that, you know, I'd just be doing the work and the work would evolve but not change, if, yes. if that makes sense. Yes. And then people who saw me as very, very low status would suddenly see a, an article in The Independent or somewhere and it'd be like, wow, that's so great, you're doing that. It's really interesting. It's like, yeah, that's what, you know. Yes. And it's lovely to get for people to respond in that way. And that somehow connects to me to value and mattering. And I think only when we value each other's ability to express themselves and we really hear... And it matters to us that people hear us and it matters that we hear other people. Mm, And mm. I think that, you know, art can do that because we can experience it in different ways. And if you hear John's lyrics in this song there, you know, I can't isolate myself. I just feel like a cloud, a star within the walls of solitude. It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, the language and the song is absolutely lovely. Well, thank you, Susanna. That was really fascinating we could carry on talking I feel actually for for a heck of a long time oh I know I'm so sorry (laughs) well don't worry we can carry on later (laughs) my old trustees used to say wind her up and let her go Uh, so I'm no it's great thank you Pippa no no not at all and we're going to play out then with funny old world and think of John who's living with very advanced dementia thank you Susanna funny old world funny
Talking to Susanna Howard, I gained a fascinating insight into not only the ways in which her charity helps those with advanced dementia to speak for themselves, reassert their identity and validate their individuality through their own living words, but I gained an understanding of how important it is for all of us to be encouraged and supported to do this. Our conversation left me full of thoughts and ideas about dementia, of course, but about life and how we live it too. If you believe in people, they can achieve anything. What a fabulous credo to live your life by. The Living Words website can be found at livingwords.org.uk, though Susanna tells me it's better to keep up to date with what they're doing via their Facebook page, where you can also listen to Funny Old World, the song Susanna created with John Offen, set to music by Marit Rockberg and performed by London Contemporary Voices. For me, Funny Old World, haunting as it is, beautifully encapsulates the power of language, of living words, and the ethos behind this extraordinary charity. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.